Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't live a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. This is Kat, your host. And this week we are doing something a little bit different. On May 9th, 1980, four men and one teenager robbed the Security Pacific Bank in Norco, California. Norco, located in Riverside County, was a sleepy little town with just over 19,000 people at the time. More known for its cow farms and horse ranches than for its crime statistics, Norco on that day would become the stage for one of the most epic rolling gun battles for its time. By its conclusion, two of the robbers were dead, 32 police units were destroyed or damaged by gunfire, one police helicopter was shot out of the air, eight officers were shot and injured, and one sheriff's deputy was killed. Four deputies involved in the incident retire from service within a few months of the event. The incident would change not only the weapons deputies were issued, such was its impact that even today, it's still used in training law enforcement and personnel in anti-terrorism and survival. Deputy Rolf Parks with the Riverside Sheriff's Department would receive the Riverside Gold Heart and the Medal of Courage from the Riverside County Sheriff's Department for his actions on the afternoon of May 9th, 1980. And he's here today to tell his story. Hello. I think uh, today there there seems to be a lot of uh, a lot of uh, media attention these days about the Norco Bank robbery. Uh, it although it occurred 39 years ago, uh, almost to the day um, from where we're talking right now. There's uh, there's been a couple of books that have been written about it. One's going to come out in uh, in June in just a few weeks called uh, Norco 80 by Peter uh, Houlihan. Peter Houlihan. It's going to be a very detailed book. Uh, I think it'll be a bestseller, and with the potential to be made into a um, a movie of some type. There there was a movie that was made uh, really soon after that wasn't as accurate, correct? Yeah, Rapid Fire didn't, doesn't even uh, resemble the narco bank robbery. Interesting, and the and the it's a tagline for that movie. Yeah, that's a different story. I should probably. I don't know if we want to talk about it at the end. There's there's a story about it, but. Uh, Anyway, we'll just leave it at that. You um, you were only 24 at the time when this happened? Well, no. I, I started law enforcement when I was 24, and so I had been there just about three years, and I was 27, 27. when it happened. You had actually given your notice two days before it happened that you were moving to another division. Yeah, that's that's kind of uh, interesting. I, I When I started with the Riverside Sheriff's Department, I had grown up in Long Beach, California, so it's about 50 miles away from uh, Riverside. And I'd never really been to Riverside. After about three years, I decided I wanted to come back closer to uh, where I was raised and where my friends were. So I had submitted my resignation to the Riverside Sheriff's on May 7th. um, And I was planning to go to the Irvine Police Department here in Orange County. And uh, so usually you think, well, you know, you're giving you two weeks notice and, uh, you're just going to sail through. You're going to take things easy. You're not going to get involved in anything big because you don't want to have to go to court on anything. You don't want to have to get involved in anything that's going to tie you up in, uh, in Riverside if you're going to move somewhere else. Fate doesn't always follow that uh, that course of action. A lot of the stuff online talks about how 
um, things have changed in the police department because of that day? Yeah, I think it's important for the uh, listeners to know that, you know, the narco bank robberies, it's 39 years old now. That's when it occurred. But you would think that about what I'm going to tell you would have happened like yesterday because of uh, the type of weaponry um, that was used by the bank robbers against uh, us, the deputy sheriffs at the time. The paradigm was that we were just armed with uh, 38 caliber revolvers, you know, uh, shooting six shots. And we had a 12-gauge shotgun, and that was our armament for the vehicle. Our radios at the time, um, we had three police stations that were utilizing the same frequency at the same time. So you just had to, like, wait uh, your turn to talk. And uh, other agencies like the Paris Police Department and the Elsinore Station the Riverside Sheriffs were all joined in with the Riverside Station. And so <clears throat> all of that's going to come to bear it and to, in what uh, is about to take place and, and how things changed, you know, because of this one incident that uh, started the ball rolling for what has now become more of a modern way of equipping uh, law enforcement. So... Just know that back in 1980, most bank robbers, uh, bank robberies and stuff were usually committed by one person or two. Oftentimes, the method wasn't a, wasn't a weapon at all. It was a note of, of, of a, a threat that they were armed and for a teller to give uh, the robber some money. Um, most of the time I read that they were, um, when a call came in regarding a bank robbery, typically it was a silent alarm that was accidentally tripped, not an actual robbery. That's true, too. Most, uh, most alarms are, are accidentally activated and aren't real alarms at all. And, uh, <clears throat> and so we'll get into that when, uh, when, when we start rolling with this thing. Um, but uh, the story takes a while. The listeners are going to have to be patient. It might be told in more than one episode. I'm not sure how long you run your uh, your program or your podcast. However long it takes but, for uh, you to tell the story is how long <laughs> we are going to run it. So just to continue with, with you know, with, with the paradigm. Um, uh, so, that, you know, most bank robberies were just like committed with notes where one guy would come in with a gun, you know, and, and maybe flash it. Maybe it was a real gun. Maybe it wasn't. Every now and then you might have somebody come in with a shotgun. But you very rarely had more than one or two people come into a into a, a bank, uh, you know, to steal money and rob people. So that was all about the change here in the uh, afternoon of May 9th, 1980. Um, so I was working uh, a midwatch that uh, started at noon and went to 10 p.m. and uh, it was a it was a smaller watch because the day watch was coming in and we covered for an hour or two until the larger swing shift came in later on uh, around uh, five in the afternoon. So in the briefing that day, um, my one of my uh, uh, deputies who had more seniority on on the department than I did. Uh, we were told in briefing that we were going to possibly have a riot in Rubido area of uh, Riverside County. 
and only uh, Glenn Belaski and myself were qualified to work in Norco because we had traffic training. And Norco was a contract city. So Glenn says, I'm working Norco today. You're working Rubido. So <laughs> I could see where that was going. So uh, he went off to, uh, to Norco that day. And uh, I was uh, working in Rubido. And then at about 3.30 in the afternoon, I'm, uh, I'm on the block that Rubido High School is, and I'm making a traffic stop. And that's when the, the, the buzzer came on that uh, warned of some type of an in-progress call. And it came out as a robbery in progress at the Security Pacific Bank located at Fourth and Hamner in the city of Norco. So I, I'm about, oh, maybe seven miles from Norco at the time, but I, I know the area very well, you know, since I worked there a lot. And Glenn Belaski, who I just told you, decided he wanted to work Norco that day, just happened to be at the intersection himself um, at a red light. And I don't think he really understood that this was an in-progress bank robbery versus a robbery alarm because uh, it was his intent to roll up by the uh, edge of the building, one of the edges of the building, and take up a position until other units arrived um, and and take up defensive positions in order for somebody to come out of the bank and tell us whether it was safe or whether we had something in progress. What he didn't realize is when he turned down the street and started proceeding uh, eastbound down 4th Street, that five uh, suspects and that uh, you talked about, one of which was a juvenile, had just robbed the bank and they were wearing uh, masks and they were wearing fatigues and for all intents and purposes, they looked paramilitary. They were all armed with shoulder-fired weapons. You know, you've heard, lots of people heard about the M16, the AR-15, and those are the type of weapons they were armed with. Much different than you've seen at any other bank robbery in the 1980s or even in the uh, uh, I'd say in the last two, two or three decades. And they begin shooting at Glenn's light bar and he pulls into the driveway, um, uh, and he faces the four adult bank robbers who are all firing shoulder fired weapons at his vehicle. And his, his vehicle is lit up, uh, you know, like, like something you've never seen. It's a fusillade of uh, rounds of ammunition uh, that was hitting all over the vehicle. And uh, he backs out of the intersection or out of the driveway into 4th Street. And by this time, all of his tires are shot out and he comes to arrest because the vehicle can't move anymore. They essentially killed the vehicle. The robbers get into a Dodge Tradesman van, and uh, to pause for a minute, they had kidnapped uh, an individual owning that van at the Brea Mall in Orange County, about 30 miles away, and they wanted a vehicle in which they could transport their uh, munitions, their weapons, in order to commit this this bank robbery. And he was tied up in the back of the van this entire time, correct? 
and they, they tied him up and he was always, you know, laying face down and in the back of the van. And, and so, you know, nobody knew that at the time, but, uh, that's why they happened to have that van. Uh, Billy Delgado, the, uh, the 17 year old was the driver of the vehicle and all of the robbers got into the van and started driving out the driveway past Glenn's car, uh, police car, not far away, probably within, within, uh, I'd say 15 to 20 feet because, because that's just where his car stopped. And then a big exchange of gunfire took place and Glenn starts returning fire using his shotgun and he, he blasts several rounds through the back end of the, of the Dodge tradesman van. And one of those pellets from, from the shotgun hits Billy Delgado right behind the, uh, the left ear in a soft spot. And that pellet went into his skull and into, uh, um, the neck area and, uh, severs a nerve. And Billy becomes totally paralyzed and, and the vehicle crashes into a tree, um, across the street. And, and so they're rendered stationary themselves. They get out of the vehicle and, and, and the, the firefight continues with the four of them shooting at Glenn, who's still by himself. Glenn, uh, is able to shoot one of the, the bank robbers, George Smith, who is the, the leader of the group. Um, shoots him somewhere in the, uh, groin area, kind of the upper, I think it was the upper left thigh area. The, uh, suspects gather up a, a large quantity. They leave the money that they stole. I, know, I was going to bring like that up. Money. They only stole $20,000 <laughs> and they left it in the van. Yeah. yeah. But they had brought with them quite a few, uh, homemade hand grenades, which we, might call uh, IEDs, uh, improvised explosive device, but in a sense, they they were uh, homemade hand grenades that they had learned how to make using the anarchist cookbook, cookbook as a uh, as a guide. They they gather up several hundred, if not thousands, of rounds of ammunition, and they start running out into the intersection while everybody's watching this bank robbery take place. And they start running to a, uh, kind of an orange, yellowish orange color, uh, Ford utility vehicle that has, uh, I think it had like acetylene systems on it, it had oxygen and other type of large, uh, standing tanks in the back of it. And, uh, the driver of the truck sees these guys coming after him after watching all the, the shooting take place and he gets out and just runs for his life. Leaving the uh, the Dodge van, they encounter two other Riverside sheriffs. So Andy Delgado, who's no relation to Billy Delgado and his brother, Manny Delgado, down Hamner going south towards 4th Street and comes to uh, a halt uh, just north of 4th Street and begins shooting at the bank robbers through a chain link fence. And Deputy Chuck Hill arrives on the scene. He stops across the street from where Glenn is on the on the north side of the street. Glenn's sort of on the south side of the street. Glenn's been shot now. He's he's screaming, you know, loud, you know, I need help. I need anybody. I need I need the army, the Air Force, the Marines, whatever. No, they had said yeah. tell me if this is correct. They had said that his car took over two hundred bullets and then countless others that had hit the pavement and trees around it. 
and he was shot five separate times and still continued to shoot back at the suspects till he ran out of ammunition. This is how it how it rolls. When I later on, when I was talking to uh, the detectives that investigated the follow up on on the bank robbery, um, Joe Kerfman, who was the lead detective, said that he could count forty seven bullet holes in Glenn's car. Those are rounds that you could count, and which didn't represent all of the bullets that were going underneath the car or through the windows and through the windows, you know, that were all shattered and broken out. So there were several hundred more rounds that were fired at Glenn during that. Oh, I think it was about a five minute uh, gun exchange when all this has taken place. That's what I forgot to mention is that it happened within four and a half minutes. Yeah. So, Glenn's screaming. Chuck sees him uh, over there by himself, and he's bleeding. So Chuck runs across the street while while the uh, bank robbers are shooting, and so he's trying to dodge bullets. And he gets over to Glenn, you know, tries to give him whatever first aid he can, and then it says, "Let's let's get out of here." So they ran across the street to back to uh, Chuck Hill's vehicle. Glenn jumps and lays down in the back seat, and Chuck drives away from the scene with Glenn's legs still hanging out of the car. There was this understanding that he had some type of an artery that was bleeding, and he was losing a lot of blood fast. So Chuck Hill leaves the scene with um, with Glenn Blasky in the back seat. Leaving Delgado there, correct? Leaving Delgado by himself on, uh, on Hamner. Now the suspects get into that uh, utility vehicle and begin driving northbound uh, Hamner. And they're hitting vehicles out of the way so that they can make their escape. Chuck, Chuck Hill eventually drives Glenn to uh, the Corona Hospital where, you know, life-saving procedures goes on. And uh, now, back to the scene when uh, they drive past Andy Delgado. He's, they're shooting his car to pieces. He gets underneath his car for protection because there's nothing else around. And uh, he avoids getting shot or injured himself. And he can't, you know, really explain, you know, like everything that was going on at the time. But he does put out a direction of the vehicle and uh, several people are leaving in it. And he wasn't quite sure if there were still suspects in the area that didn't get in the vehicle. And so that becomes an issue, you know, throughout the chase that, that they still thought that they had or that there might be another crime scene or, you know, suspects in the area, Fourth and Hamner, when, in fact, they had all left, but nobody knew that. And remember, I told you, we're we're using a radio that's being used by three police departments. So now the the bank robbers are going northbound on Hamner, uh, leaving the city of Norco. They had parked two cars uh, up by 7th and Hamner that were going to be their, their getaway vehicles from the van that they were going to use. They had extra ammunition and extra, uh, rifles and other equipment in those vehicles that they intended to transfer to. But since they were being pursued, they never made the stop. As they're, uh, leaving the, uh, the city, another deputy, uh, Daryl Reed is coming southbound and they start shooting at him and they hit him in the leg 
and he has to pull over the shoulder of the road to, you know, to gather himself. And so he becomes the second deputy wounded at the time. The suspects just continue northbound Hamner. And when uh, Joe Reed uh, finds that it's it's safe for him to uh, proceed, he goes down to the bank at 4th and Hamner uh, to seek uh, help or from anyone that's down there. Now, at the time, there was nobody down there but uh, but uh, Deputy Delgado. And, uh, and that scene still stays active while several... Uh, other sheriff's units from our department and police aid, police cars from the Corona Police Department descend on the area uh, to look for additional suspects. So now you're looking at two crime scenes here. They're looking at an active scene at 4th and Hamner, and now you have a, an active uh, armed pursuit of the suspects leaving the city, and everybody's using the radio at the same time. Things become kind of garbled at this time. The suspects go north on uh, on Hamner, and I was responding from from the Rubido area, as I told you. And I'm and I'm just flying down uh, Limonite Boulevard westbound as fast as I can. It was like a scene out of uh, the movie Bullet, where you see cars bouncing up and down the street. In You're bodying me now. That was, that was me. <laughs> I'm bodying out. Yeah, it's like I am trying everything I can do to get there because I'm listening to all this stuff going down. Now I had read that you were giving a speed a ticket when you got when you originally got the call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, everything's happening so fast. So many things are happening so fast. Uh, it's like I I started a ticket and I just had to throw everything back in the in the driver's face and and proceed down the road. You know, stop <laughs> what I was doing and, and start getting into the into this battle. Remember, I told you, like, this was supposed to be a quiet two weeks, and it wasn't a very quiet two weeks at all. It, so, it wasn't going as you point, had planned at all at this point. No, it wasn't, this wasn't retirement at all. As I'm going down Limonite, I hear uh, there's a couple of deputies that are down at uh, Limonite and Hamner setting up a roadblock, you know, waiting for the suspects. And since I know the area, I know that, well, you have to cover the other area, too, which is a, a road called Schleisman off, off of Hamner before you get to Limonite. So I, I, I took an intersecting route, and as I proceed down this, this road, I, I can hear another deputy, Deputy Doug Borden, saying that he's encountering the suspects on Schleisman uh, in the area of, uh, of Wineville. And so I know that I'm only I'm only a block away from it at this time. So I had only this description of a what was described by Andy as a yellow truck, but it was really an orange truck. And I see it coming towards me now. And it's you know, I think and so I'm taking trying to think, is this the truck? You know, it's not yellow but it's orange and yet you can see it's aggressively driving. I see them coming towards me and I just pull through the right of the road as far as I can. And in Norco, or now I'm, we're in Miraloma, outside of Norco, and there's a uh, a horse corral that's right there, and uh, there's no there's really no place for me to go because it looked to me like they were going to come and uh, ram right into the front or side of my car, the way they were driving aggressively. I had no idea what to do. There's no real no training for something like this. There's no training for what what you know for bank robbers with uh, shoulder fired weapons you know, shooting at you to, to do. You kind of have to make things up as you go along. In split seconds. Was, yeah. The only thing I could do was take a defensive position, and I 
I leaned to my right across the, uh, we were using bench seats at the time as, as opposed to bucket seats. And I was able to like kind of get into a crevice between the radio and the shotgun and the seat. And uh, I just kind of tried to cover my myself with my arm my, over my head. And then, uh, as you may have heard in, in other shootings, how things, how time and motion slows down. That's exactly what happens. I can hear the rounds hitting the side of my car. I can see glass flying all over the inside of the car. It was almost like snow. It was almost like a chunks of glass and powder. And then you could see the suspects with uh, their hoods, you know, driving by. And they're, and you can see they're shooting and you can see the retraction of their rifles. They're shooting, shooting, shooting. And it's like, this is when you feel like you're going to die. I mean, there's nothing I can do. And if they stop and get out of the car, I'm a dead man. There's nothing I can do. What were you thinking? But I, I was thinking I was going to die. And I was just wondering how, how much it was going to hurt to die. And there wasn't anything to do. There wasn't anything like, like where I could get a gun and sit up and shoot because if you sat up, you were definitely going to be a target. To my fortune, they missed like killing me, but one of the rounds did strike and hit uh, the top of my head and put a little furrow, if you would, across the top of my skull. And I kind of flinched and, you know, threw my head back a little bit. And I, was, and I go, well, that's one hit. And I was kind of waiting for the next rounds to, to come. They kept shooting and shooting and shooting as, as they went down the, down the street. From where I'm at, the street becomes a street called Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S. And it's a winding road. And they're shooting, shooting, shooting until they get to a wind in the turn. And uh, we're no longer inside of one another. Thing is very you can hear is my engine running, you know, screaming on the radio, you know, but nothing around me. So I'm, I feel like I can sit up and look around and that's, I kind of like peek up over the, over the seat as I'm looking around through the back window, the back window's all shot to pieces. I can't see that. And so now I'm thinking to myself, well, what do I do next? You know, do I, do I go home <laughs> or do I stay? Which is your, probably your first instinct is I'm just going to go home. Look, at, that was bad enough. Yeah. I'm done. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm leaving this town in, in less than two weeks and it's like, but, you know, when you hear that radio and all that screaming and shouting going on, it's like, if you're a cop and you're blue, you're, you know, you're in the fight and you're going to be in the fight until you, until you, until it's over or until you die. As simple as that. When I read that you did a U-turn and went after right. them, I was like, he not only made a con, like, it's, it's crazy enough to me to make the decision to continue. I mean, clearly I'm not a police yeah. officer. But then when I'm like, like he did a U-turn and went after him. That's like, like you were committed from that second on. Like, that's it. I'm in it. That's true. And and I was, I was committed into it for a long time. I was the deputy longest involved in the chase um, from beginning to end. And I was rather persistent. I was rather angry that uh, they had shot me, shot my friends, and and, uh, I wasn't going to let them get away with it. And I made that U-turn and proceeded uh, westbound on Home Street. And as I started driving down the road, uh, I, I caught up to them uh, at first glance. And they were, oh, I'd say maybe 100 yards, so 150 yards out in front of me. And all of a sudden, I, I 
It's the blast of the rounds again. Bang. Just everything's coming. You know, these, these, uh, there's three guys shooting at me. It's, it's Manny Delgado, George Smith, and, uh, Russell Harvin. And the vehicle's now being driven by Chris Harvin, the other brother of, uh, of Russell. And it's like, I suddenly realized, like, these guys really do, uh, do have shoulder-fired weapons, you know, and nobody had really said that. And even though I, uh, you know, I had seen them, it's like, man, they are just plastering me. They are just plastering There's nothing I can do here but kind of slow down and, and give them as much distance as I can so that I, I don't get so close that they uh, take aim at me and shoot me in the head. So now I'm, I'm deputy three that's been wounded, but I'm, I'm able. So the road comes to an end at uh, Etiwanda Street and turns northbound uh, on Etiwanda. We're still in Miraloma. And uh, I follow them up the road, and they're still shooting at me, still shooting at me. And then uh, I see Deputy Herman Smith, who was one of my academy classmates. He, he makes a left turn from Limonite onto Etiwanda. And then you see these three guys in unison stop shooting at me and start shooting at him. And you just see his, his, his vehicle just explode like, like a bomb had gone off. And then they continue through the intersection. Two other deputies were now at, at Limonite. Um, Dave Madden on the uh, east side and uh, Wayne McDaniels on, on the west side. And they shoot uh, Wayne McDaniels in the shoulder through, through the windshield. Herman had been shot in the leg through the door and was uh, deputy, the fourth deputy shot. Uh, now Wayne McDaniels is the fifth deputy shot. I, uh, I stopped next to uh, Herman's car and I, I shot out to him and I asked him if he's okay. And he, he sits up and he gives me a nod and he, and he gave me the sign that he was okay. Because uh, now I have to make a decision. If he, uh, he's got in a life-threatening situation, I'm going to have to take him to the hospital and stop the chase. But he looked good enough that he could handle himself. So I continue the chase by myself for the moment, crossing Limonite. And I'm watching uh, the suspects as they're shooting at me. And, and you could see one of them was crouched down on the back end of this pickup. And you could just see him dialing into, the, into my windshield. And I could see a round come through the windshield just over my head. And uh, I had to stop. I just had to pull over and stop because uh, I knew they had me dialed in. And just as that happened, two highway patrol units uh, passed me on the left. Bill Crow, uh, Officer Bill Crow is uh, leading uh, Officer uh, Doug Ernest, Ernst in, um, in two police car or highway patrol cruisers going northbound on uh, on uh, Etiwanda. And so I sit there for a while thinking they're, they're going to get plastered here. This is going to, it's not going to go well for them because they're getting really close to the, uh, to the suspects. Are, are they not aware of the, of the weapons that the, the robbers had? So the highway patrol, uh, and the Riverside sheriffs do not have direct communications with one another. So they, In other words, I can't talk to them. They can't talk to me. However, some of those guys carry scanners so they can hear us talking. And that, that's, that's how they got into the chase is that, is that uh, they had scanners on and they could hear the chase going on. And so they were doing what, what they were doing. 
uh, and there was no way for me to warn him off because uh, I couldn't talk to him directly. I got I proceed down Etowanda and I turn a couple streets south of uh, Harupa, and and as I'm going down the road, I don't see him. I don't know where they are, and then I decide, well, I'm going to turn left on Marlette Street. And I turn left on Marlette, and just as I turn Marlette, guess what? The suspects are turned left on Marlette themselves, about a block ahead of me. And they're shooting at me. They're shooting at the two highway patrol officers, and things are just getting nuts at this point. I mean, well, it's been nuts. But as I go down the road, I told you Def- Deputy Dave Madden, who had been at uh, Limonite, and Etiwanda, he was behind me now, and he was telling me about my, like uh, my, my uh, one of my, I guess it was the left front tire had gone flat, and I should pull over and get into his car. And so, as I look around, I, I guess I can kind of sense that the car's leaning to the left, and I'm leaning to the right, you know, over the seat and over the uh, below the dashboard, trying to stay below the gunfire. And uh, I just told Dave to to follow the guys because somebody needed to chase them and, and, and stay in the chase no matter what, somebody from Riverside Sheriff's. So he he continues the chase, and I stop at the intersection of 54th and Marlette. I get out. I take my shotgun with me, and I'm sort of standing there on the road when another deputy, uh, Fred Chisholm, comes up alongside and... Uh, he picks me up, and then I direct him to go down to the end of the road on Marlette, and we go down to Bellevue, and we turn right, and we come up to a scene, and there's four cars stopped in the intersection or on the street a block away. And I go, this isn't good. And I hear somebody say that the suspects are out of their vehicle in the area. It turned out to not be true. I get out of the car and I start crawling through the through the bushes or uh, kind of a tall grass on the edge of the road. And I look to my left and I can see uh, Doug Crow's been shot and Doug Ernst is um, tending to uh, giving him first aid. I crawl through the bushes when I get over. Uh, I think it was called Dodd Street. Um, nobody's there. The suspects aren't there. I start to walk back and now I see uh, Deputy. Tony Renard from the sheriff's department. He was he was shot leaning over on, on his side. Front of his car is blasted with uh, rifle rounds and such. And Deputy Rudy Romo is treating to his uh, medical needs. So I motioned to Fred, let's get let's get back in the car. I don't know where these guys are. Right now, nobody's chasing the suspects. Everybody's either out of action or or shot. About this time, the uh, the city of Riverside had its had a police helicopter, and that helicopter did have our frequency in it, so we could talk to him. We could talk back and forth. So now I can hear him talking about where the suspects are at. Nobody's nobody's following him, but he's a little mixed up on the names of the streets and the direction he's going. I'm telling uh, Deputy Chisholm to go over, you know, keep going uh, west on uh, on Harupa and listening to the helicopter he was saying they're going northbound they're going southbound and we start, we're, we're like doing a donut out in the middle of the street trying to figure out where these guys are at because we don't know which direction to go so finally I just look up and I can see the helicopter and I can see that it's west of us I go go west and follow follow the helicopter 
And then they say that the suspects are now getting on to the 60 freeway and transitioning to the uh, I-15 freeway, sort of at the uh, west end of or west end of uh, Riverside County. So kind of reviewing things. Let's see, we had uh, four or five. Uh, so now we had Deputy Renard and uh, officers, uh, Officer uh, Crow shot. So now it's, what are we at? We're at seven now. That's what does to say. That's seven. seven. You know, it's just, it's just getting crazy. They proceed to uh, get on to the Interstate 15. And I direct uh, Deputy Chisholm, to, you know, to take the uh, the ramp and, and follow them. And, and at this time, now we can see where they're at. They're, they're, they're at the far end of the, uh, of the cloverleaf itself, the turnoff, getting on to the 15. And, and so we're, we're, I don't know, maybe 200 yards from them. Now they're not shooting at me. And what I, what I did know and found out at a later time, they were actually shooting at a San Bernardino helicopter that was um, out overhead. I didn't see where they were, but uh, they were shooting at this uh, Hughes 500, um, helicopter, a jet helicopter run by the San Bernardino Sheriff's who, who are now getting actively involved in the chase themselves. One of those rounds that was fired hit, hit one of the skids and it ricochets through the bottom shell of the helicopter and hit the radio, uh, equipment, uh, inside the helicopter and starts an electrical fire with, with smoke coming out. And this was obviously a bad situation for them, that the suspects had dialed them in. They were hitting hitting the, the plane, and now they had an onboard fire. So fortunately, they were close to Rialto Airport, and they made a forced landing. They didn't crash. They made a forced landing at uh, Rialto Airport. So, I mean, how often do you see a, poli- a police helicopter being shot down? <laughs> no, we're you know? at like 50, what is it, 15 <laughs> or 20 pl- police units or sheriff's units and a helicopter i can't tell you how many cars cars are shot up and we're only into it like 25 minutes or 20 minutes or something yeah yeah so as uh as we're going down the uh uh the 15 there's there's this big 18 wheeler that was in front of us between me and them and I say, let's just get behind this, this 18 wheelers and, uh, hopefully they won't shoot at us and we can just like be undercover while, while following them. <clears throat> and it pulls out of, out, off to the road to the side, you know, and guess what? The curtain opens and, and on comes the, uh, the rifle fire, uh, onto our vehicle. You can hear, you can hear the rounds striking the vehicle. You can hear it striking the ground. It's, it's really strange to be shot at in that manner. I think, you know, most of us, you know, when we go to the police range and, and, and qualify with our weapons, we're used to how a bullet sounds when it's going away from us. But when it's coming towards you, it's a whole different thing. Especially in rapid, and, uh, I mean, in a constant for yeah, 20 minutes now. Yeah. It, it, it sounds much differently, especially when it hits the ground. Cause it's, it, it sounds like, it sounds like, sounds like somebody's cracking a whip, you know, so you could hear this bang, Bang! Like a, like a like a whip's being cracked or something. For a while there, I thought we were being shot at from behind, you know, but it was just the rounds hitting the ground behind us and making a snapping sound versus a, a ricochet sound. So anyway, here we are once again. We're we're in the lead. Nobody else is around. It's just us. 
And uh, and now we're heading northbound on the 15. Which, so as we go down the road, uh, they stop uh, they stop shooting. So we got moved up a little closer, maybe thinking that that maybe they had run out of ammunition. A little did you know? <laughs> and uh, right about this time, a highway patrol unit uh, comes along our right side. Now he's he's supposed to lead, yield to me. I'm the I'm the one in you know, leading this thing, but he decides he's going to run up on these guys. And then the next thing you know, you see an explosion in the air. And one of those hand grenades that I talked to you about goes off in the air and all of a sudden they put on the brakes. And, uh, and now we, we pass them. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's right. <laughs> We're the leaders. Yeah. You stay right there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then we go a little bit further, and, and then another one goes off in the air. And you know, you could feel the the shrapnel hitting the hitting the vehicle. What they had, what they had done was, they had uh, they had put together using uh, a twelve ounce beer cans. They had put in a a PVC pipe, uh, kind of like a pipe bomb. It had a had a smokeless gunpowder in it that was compressed and packed. And sealed on the end like a, like a pipe bomb would be. And they had that in the middle of the can. And then surrounding that were, uh, cement nails, glass, and other type of any personnel, uh, stuff that they put in there, ball bearings, et cetera. I have a quick question. Yeah. The, Go ahead. the fact that they had, I mean, their plan was to rob a bank and they left the money in the van. The first opportunity they had to try and escape, they left the money, but they had these, yeah. These pipe bombs and all this ammunition, their their intent wasn't bank robbing. Their intent was to kill anyone who got in their way. Like that was more of their intent than actually stealing any money. <laughs> I that was their intent that if they were they were going to do everything they could, kill every officer that that got in their way. Uh, if if they got um, apprehended or if they were uh, being chased they were not going to go to jail and they prepared for it in that manner by uh, having bought uh, shoulder-fired weapons um, consisting of AR-15s, HK-91 and an HK-93. Those are German-made assault rifles similar to the American rifles and they had learned how to to shoot them in an area known as uh, uh, Vital Creek. Creek. And, uh, which is off the 15 off of Sierra Street. So little did we know that that's where they were going. We're going down the freeway. Our route, our vehicle had been hit by so many rounds that the radiator was now boiling over. Our, uh, our car starts chugging, jerking back and forth. Uh, all of the water or coolant that's in the radiator is going out. Steam is coming out from underneath the hood. And it was pretty obvious that we weren't going to be in this chase any much longer in this vehicle anyway. So I, I radioed to the people behind that, that uh, somebody else was going to have to take take over at this time because our, our, our vehicle's dying. And right at this moment, the uh, the suspects get off on Sierra Street and, and they release another hand grenade into the air. And then I get passed by Jim Evans, Deputy Jim Evans, 
I get passed by highway patrol. I get passed by, I think, Ontario police. I get, I get passed by just about everybody. We get off on Sierra and our car dies right there at the 15. And so we get out of our car and basically we get passed by, I would estimate about 30 police vehicles that had caught up to us at this point and now we're passing us. Kind of feeling, uh, uh, you know, some frustration here that, uh, I'm not in this chase anymore. But then the last car in the chase is being driven by uh, Deputy Mike Jordan or uh, Detective Deputy Mike Jordan from Riverside, and he picks us up. And uh, we follow as the last car in the chase at this point. The suspects go into the Lytle Creek area, which is uh, the uh, the Cleveland National Forest. Lots of trees, winding roads. And uh, the suspects get off on a uh, on a fire road, and they uh, proceed into an area known as uh, Barton Flats, which is kind of a camping area. But I mean, the road's really rough. It's you can't you can't drive very very fast on it because the it's very uh, gravelly, you know, potholes up and down, all that kind of stuff. Having said that, you're still probably driving 30 or 40 miles faster than the speed limit for the area. And I see uh, a person on the side of the road. He's got a rifle in his hand. And, I mean, it's a citizen. And I, and I stop, and and I ask the guy for his rifle, and I tell him that, you know, there's these guys, uh, bank robbers going down the street. Can I use your rifle? And he says, oh, you can, but I don't have any ammunition. I fired it all. Ugh. He had a 30, he had a 30-odd six rifle. I go, damn it. So then we keep going down down the dirt road uh, following the uh, the dust. And we can hear um, one of our uh, detective sergeants ahead of us had a radio that could communicate with this another San Bernardino helicopter that that had replaced the other one that had been shot down. It was overhead. And unfortunately for Jim Evans, he was having to wait for the helicopter to tell to tell Sergeant Bender what was what was ahead of him, and then Bender would relay it to. Uh, Deputy Evans. So there was this delay factor that we couldn't talk uh, on the same frequency with the helicopter at the time. And, and I kind of forgot to say that, you know, that other scene is going on on the same frequency down back and forth at Hammer. And you can see how there's this fog of, of battle and who's, you know, who's going to get the talk and who's not. You've got two battles essentially going on at the same time. One's lot, one's real and one isn't. But the one that's not real, nobody knows. If the suspects are around, they're going door to door, house to house, building to building, clearing the area to make sure there weren't any suspects going on down there. So all of that is keeping Jim Evans from getting the information he needs to try and stay alive. And it's a a windy switchback kind of road that we're going through. There's no name for it. It's just in Barton Flats. And how far are you behind Jim Evans? Uh, I'm probably a half mile behind right at this point. I stop. We stop again. I see another guy with a rifle. I ask him for the rifle, uh, and uh, he hands me the rifle, and then he hands me the ammunition, and it's a 22. Uh, I was kind of like disappointed, but we had, at least we had a rifle. We could put some some distance factor in it. Then we continue down this bumpy road, as I was telling you, and I'm trying to load this this weapon, which is I'm, I'm probably dropping more rounds 
on the floor than I'm putting into the gun itself. But I got at least six or seven rounds into it. Well, let's not forget that you're <clears> also <throat> probably bleeding from a head wound currently. Yeah, you know, and I got glass in my eye, and, which I didn't know. And I, I mean, I, I mean, my my whole head is full of glass and glass shavings, and my face is full of all this stuff. Uh, so we get to this horseshoe shaped canyon, and they had so they were switching back and coming back towards us, but across this gulch. So I'm, I don't know, I'm I'm probably 150 yards across the gulch from the road that they're driving that they're about to drive on. And all of a sudden, I hear Jim Jim Evans say that he's hit. You can hear all you can hear all these guys, all the all the suspects are shooting at once. I mean, it sounded like like machine gun fire. You could just it was just loud. It was echoing. It was all over the place. So what had happened was there was a washout in the road that that they were driving on, and they couldn't they couldn't get past it. And so they got out of their their truck and started walking down the hill. And we were talking about it before. They weren't going to be taken. Uh, they weren't going to be captured. So they were walking down the road, and it was their intent to shoot everybody that got in their way. What happened was Jim Evans took a fusillade of, of rounds through the windshield, comes to a stop, gets out of his car, runs around to the back, shoots six rounds from the, from his thirty eight at a distance of 50 yards at uh, at the, uh, the suspects. And he actually hits Chris. Chris Harbin uh, in the side of the rib cage, but our rounds aren't very effective at this range. It hits him in hits him in the rib cage and just kind of slides around it. It never goes into the body cavity. So he's basically got got kind of a flesh wound itself, and that's the kind of weaponry we had at the time. And they're still continuing down the road, walking down the road towards shooting, him, towards him, and all the other cars, all those thirty cars that were in front of us. The next unit that was behind uh, Deputy Evans, Evans was a was a, a San Bernardino Sheriff's uh, unit with uh, DJ McCarty, who was actually off duty, and uh, Jim McFerrin. Uh, McCarty had picked up uh, a fully automatic M16 out of the armory at uh, the West Valley Station. Uh, got picked up by Jim McFerrin in the parking lot, and. Uh, and DJ McCarty here, he's, he's wearing a red jacket and, a, and his uniform pants. He doesn't even have his gun belt. He was, he was trying to hand the rifle to Jim and went, Jim said, just get in the car. So now, so now here they are. They're the next ones being fired at. And the, and the, and the rounds are, are, are just devastating. DJ says he's trying to dig a hole between, beneath. He got out of the unit and he's trying to dig a hole in the ground behind the right front tire of the vehicle to try and get some kind of cover he says he looks up you know to you know to see sort of the legs of the suspect but he can see jim evans on the ground mm. jim's jim got hit had gotten hit in the face and and uh fell on his back and died on the ground right there right there in front of him ej knew that he was going to be next if he didn't do something and so he wasn't extremely familiar with the with the m16 but he he did figure out how to how to charge the weapon and uh he reaches up over the top of the hood of this police car that he's in and the rifle is upside down because he knows if he sticks his head up he's going to get hit like jim evans so he, he just sticks his arms up and he starts shooting 
the you know his uh, M16, and the suspects now hear that they're getting returned fire. DJ's rounds weren't effective at all, but the sound of the of the M16 scared them. But DJ gets hit in the arm. They sh- remember I told you he's wearing that red jacket. They shoot him in the arm, so he's the next deputy shot. And uh, but they decide to turn and run up the hill. Now I see these guys. I'm down the hill and I'm looking up at these guys and I can see them. I try to get to a place between the forest trees because there's a lot of trees. I can kind of see them. I can kind of not see them. And I, I bring the rifle up and I shoot around right in the middle section of them. I don't see anybody drop and they're running up the hill, you know, trying to save their lives. I run back to the back of my unit. I start tracking them, but I'm in the trees. I can't, I can't shoot at them because there's too many trees in the way. And that was the only round I got to fire was that 122 round at the front of my car. At the time, did you know that Deputy Evans had been killed? Yeah. There were the people, there was additional radio traffic after the suspects fled. People were able to talk on our frequency and I was able to hear that, yeah, confirming that, that, that Jim Evans was dead. You know, we kind of sat there for a moment. And then a, a few minutes later, a, uh, a San Bernardino city, I believe it was the city police, there was a small contingent of SWAT officers from their city was driving up the road and uh, they had rifles with them and they went up the hill and, uh, and sort of took command of, of the, uh, the scene because we're not, we're in San Bernardino County. We're not in Riverside, Riverside County. County anymore. So this, this is their area. Uh, the helicopter's still flying overhead. He doesn't see where the where the suspects went because of uh, the the forest and the trees. Then uh, another car pulls up behind me, and it's uh, two people who identify themselves as assistant sheriffs from uh, from San Bernardino. They want to know what's going on, and I kind of give them a little bit of of a rundown. And then I hear that uh, DJ McCarty is being walked down the hill because he's wounded and shot. And uh, the helicopter is going to land and take him to Loma Linda Hospital. That's, uh, I don't know, about 20 miles away. And that was, for the first time, I thought about myself. I, I hadn't thought about it. I go, somebody check me out. I have no idea what, you know, what I look like. And I had uh, another uh, uh, deputy... Uh, Look at my look at my head. So you got shot. I go, yeah. I said, you bleeding? Yeah, I know. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> well, you gotta get checked out too. Send and it to, seems uh, like it had been hours, but the entire um, time from the bank robbery until they escaped into the forest temporarily, at least, was only forty three minutes or something. So from the time that. Well, the bank robbery, from the time of the bank robbery or from the pursuit to where, where the pursuit ends and Jim is killed is, is approximately 58 minutes. 58. So I was, I was in, the, in the chase for quite a while. Your, uh, your car was stood a little bit longer and you was stood a little bit yeah. longer? Yeah. So I got, there, I got there in three police cars because they, they, they killed my first two police cars. And I got there in the third one. So you and finally so, went to the hospital but, when they took McCartney? Yeah, I, I wasn't. I was. I didn't know if I was going to go because I, I. I have to say, there's a lot of there's a lot of emotions that go through through you. You know, when you you go through terror from. Remember when they were 
shooting at me. I thought I was going to die. It's terror. I think you're going to die. You're kind of scared. You don't know if you even want to stay in this chase any longer and go home. What do you want to run or, you know, follow these guys. And then you get, then you get anger. And, uh, and I was pretty angry that all this was happening in front of me. And so I argued with the two, uh, assistant sheriffs from San Bernardino said, I'm not going. I said, I got to finish this thing. And, and so then my guys took me aside and said, you got to go. You got to go. So I got into the helicopter with, uh, with DJ McCarty and, uh, we, we flew out of the, uh, out of the canyon. And, uh, so, um, that ended things for me for the day. Uh, they landed us on the roof at Loma Linda hospital. Uh, I was kind of by myself. They took DJ off to with, there were some other deputies there and I was kind of there by myself and they're in the uh, emergency room. And I, I just kind of, Oh, well, you know, let me call my wife, you know? So I called my wife to tell her that was okay. And I started crying. I just couldn't believe I was in this kind of situation, but at least I was alive. She said that she had just gotten a call that a helicopter was taking me to the hospital and I'd been shot in the head. Wow. You, know? you, you technically <laughs> had been. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, anyway, she was glad to hear that uh, I was okay. I wasn't, I wasn't dead. I mean, the, the assumption was I was, I was dead or near death and when I really wasn't. So then after that, uh, you know, when you're in that fight or flight and the adrenaline is, is running, um, you don't feel pain. You don't feel anything really. Um, I was now in a safe place. I'd been sitting on a gurney in the ER maybe for 15 or 20 minutes. And all of a sudden my right eye just starts hurting like you can't believe. And I'm screaming. I go, my eye, my eye. And the doctor comes running in and, uh, and I'm screaming, is there something in my eye or something? I can't, it's hurting real bad. So he puts a dye in my eye and says, oh, there's a piece of glass sliding around in there. Which you'd so, had in uh, there for that probably entire time since you were shot so, at. Uh, yeah. And so I didn't feel any of that pain. None. I had no idea that there was, there was a, a glass fragment rolling around in my eye, scratching the, uh, the outside of my eye. So, you know, I got, I got x-rayed and, uh, I got picked up by one of my sheriffs, uh, one of my sheriff sergeants later on in the evening and uh, taken back to uh, Riverside Station where I, I met with Sheriff Clark at the time. It was gave him a little synopsis about what had happened and such. And then they gave me a couple of administrative days off uh, to gather myself, which I was in, in, in uh, need of. And so that that's how things ended uh for me on that day, on May 9th, the uh, four suspects had uh, basically jumped off the road and gone down into the ravine and were hiding throughout the night. And they split up in the morning and went in different directions. This area is the uh, site of Mount Baldy. So, so if you live in the in the L.A., Orange County area, San Bernardino, everybody knows where Mount Baldy is. And... Uh, Things had gone down into freezing temperatures overnight. So in the morning, Assistant Sheriff, or no, I guess that would be Under Sheriff Floyd Tidwell, was driving into Barton Flats with his uh, attaches with him. They, they see two scruffy-looking guys walking through the wash, and they go, this, could this be some of them? And they, they draw down on them, and it was the Harbin brothers. It was Chris and, and Russell Harbin. Chris... Chris, as I told you, had been shot by 
by Deputy Evans, but it wasn't a very penetrating wound based on the type of ammunition we were carrying. Uh, 38, 110-grain bullets, not very effective at 50 yards. And they take uh, the Harvin brothers into custody. So now there's two other uh, suspects out there. San Bernardino sheriffs really didn't have a SWAT team. At the time, they had people with rifles, and uh, but not trained. So they call in the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department's Special Enforcement Bureau, which is their SWAT team, and their 62-man SUV unit entirely came to assist in the hunt, the manhunt for the remaining two suspects. One uh, has in one area, uh, they encounter George Smith, who actually surrendered and called out to the deputies, because he, remember I told you he'd been shot by, by Glenn Belaski back at the bank, and uh, he gets taken into custody. And then the last guy is Manny Delgado, and then he's seen in a, in a different area. And uh, <clears throat> when the L.A. sheriffs encounter him, uh, he was only armed with a handgun at the time. Uh, his uh, rifle was never found. He decides he's going to gonna take up arms against the uh, the deputies that are responding, and uh, uh, he didn't make it. <laughs> Just say uh, he uh, he was shot and died of his wounds. So now it turns out through ballistics that it was actually Russell Harmon is the one that killed uh, Jim Evans by shooting Jim in the head. But he didn't get any longer sentence than the other two. The jury convicted them of uh, two murders, which is Jim Evans, uh, the death of uh, Billy Delgado since he was involved in the uh, felony uh, robbery of the bank. So the felony murder rule applied to Billy Delgado on the other suspects. They were convicted of two murders, 44 and 44 felony. We, uh, those of us that survived the gun battle, we all met for a group uh, therapy session about a week or two after the, uh, after the bank robbery, and we all told our stories to one another about how things went for us and uh, and the stress and everything that it placed on us and how things were affecting us in our lives. Do you um, stay in touch with them? But, so I, I stay loosely in, in touch with them. Um, a little bit with, with DJ McCarty, a little bit with uh, uh, Andy Delgado. Um, and then the others, we have, we have a reunion about every 10 years, 2020. I would assume in May of 2020, we'll have another reunion. Um, I don't know that, but probably. Uh, it's been a big deal in law enforcement. The fact that as you know, to review everything, you know, you had eight deputies wounded, one killed, a helicopter shot down. Um, IEDs or hand grenades are being used against us. What they had left behind at the scene were shotgun launched um, rockets and uh, grenades and uh, Molotov cocktails. If they had been able to launch those things at us, it, we may have not made it to uh, to uh, Barton Flats or to uh, Lytle Creek. They that van was was heavily loaded with uh, major uh, explosive and uh, flammable devices used to uh, launch at us out of a shotgun like a mortar and a hand throw at us uh, as well. It was unbelievable uh, what what they had brought. Um, to the bank robbery to make this thing happen. Um, and, uh, we're just fortunate that it, it, then 
only one of us was killed. Um, I think probably all of us probably thought we were dead men at one time or another during the chase, and I was one of them. In the aftermath, but, uh, did it? How did it change you? So, you know, I, I have to say, you know, following a, a major shooting, probably even even sometimes the most inconspicuous type of shootings, you know, those things, those things replay in your mind a lot. They don't go away. This this was not so much a, a gunfight as it was a, a war zone, you know, or it was ongoing. Now today, you, you would think, well, yeah, we see that a lot on on the air. You've seen all these terrorists. Uh, bombings and shootings that are occurring in schools and college campuses or and concert. uh, concerts, uh, the incident uh, in San Bernardino. That, that's kind of, you know, what you see today is not what you saw back in the day. You didn't have any of those things going on back in 1980. That, that's kind of why it made such which big news and, and why it's uh, so active today in, uh, in everybody's interest. What happened out there? What happened in the great narco bank robbery? Um, so, as a result, the sheriff's department now has a, a fleet of helicopters. They have a, a bomb di- disposal unit, and they have uh, a west end and a east end uh, SWAT teams. You know, and other special teams, things that didn't exist um, before, and of course, uh, an advanced uh, radio communication system to so where. Now you can communicate with other agencies on on the radio, and if you have more than one things going on, you can change frequencies to another and uh, and handle two on the on the radio at the same time, but on different frequencies. That that one chase dramatically changed the Riverside Sheriff's Department. It dramatically changed um, how law enforcement would have to handle. A similar situation if it were to happen again. And of course, everybody knows that a similar one happened in North Hollywood a few years later, where guys with machine guns did a bank robbery and there was a big shootout that took place. So now we see patrol rifles in the car. So now you see uh, a lot of, if not most police agencies now have their own assault rifles in the car. So that if they're met with uh, those kind of weapons, you can answer in kind at the same time of shooting. I can only say that you, you have no idea the devastating effect of what of what being under fire from a um, a shoulder fired weapon is. It pins you down. You can't move. You can't do anything. It 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 takes over the area and the space around you until they stop shooting. I, I'm I'm happy all those things happen. Uh, not only for the Riverside sheriffs, but uh, everywhere else. When I went to uh, the Irvine Police Department uh, on May 19th, just uh, 10 days after the bank robbery. Of course, I had to t- had my story to tell to them. And uh, for the next two years, they had me uh, make a uh, a movie of the narco bank robbery. Uh, and at the time, using rudimentary uh, type of things such as uh, slides and uh, a cassette tape, um, and uh, and such to make a, an hour-long presentation of the narco bank robbery, which you can see on YouTube. And I was talking with Sheriff Smith at the uh, 30-year reunion. He, he said he had no idea what was going on until I made that movie. And it got it's been shared in virtually every police academy, I think, in the United States and uh, several countries outside of the United States uh, as something to watch and as something to uh, 
to use as a tool in order to like, how would you fight that battle today? And, uh, and I'm happy to say it looks like we're in good shape. We can, we can fight that battle today. What, um, tell us before we go, tell us what you're doing now. So I did, uh, after, uh, I went to Irvine, uh, police department, I, I served there for another 30 years. Um, I worked field training. I worked SWAT for 17 years. Um, I was a school resource officer for several years, and then I was a, a police detective investigating arson crimes and uh, and retired without ever being involved in another shooting uh, a- after May 9th. Today, I work for the city of Los Angeles as a uh, background investigator in a civilian capacity. So I do uh, police and fire backgrounds. Uh, so I'm still associated with uh, the law enforcement community, uh, bringing on uh, good police and firemen to uh, serve the community of, of Los Angeles. I will say that there were uh, all those deputies that were that went to the Norco bank robbery, uh, Chuck Hill, Glenn Belaski, and uh, Andy Delgado. They all medically retired um, within uh, six months of the bank robbery. Really? Uh, yeah, and the uh, the on-duty sergeant that was in the field at the time also retired medically. Well, it's a it's a stress medical, if you will, uh, that people do. And uh, for me, I think I was fortunate by making that that narco film that I was able to like put all my thoughts into that thing for two years. That it actually helped help me get through the PTSD, if you will, that, right. that comes with a major shooting like that. And uh, I think if it, if it hadn't been for that, I, w- I would wonder whether I, you know, whether I would have taken a stress medical. But I was able to ha- handle it through a positive means and uh, and make uh, something worthwhile to the law enforcement community in this country and, and in other countries. I have uh, maintained uh, communication with Jim Evans' wife, Mary, over the years. And uh, Jim had one son at the time, James Evans, Jr., He's like 35 now. And his stepdaughter. Um, and yeah. And Jim, Jim Jr. is now uh, a law enforcement officer with oh. Homeland Security in the uh, uh, Riverside, Orange County, uh, and LA County area. And oh. uh, so he's kind of followed in his father's footsteps going into law enforcement. And uh, he, <clears throat> he's uh, got remarried a couple of years ago and has a child. Oh. So I keep in touch with them. And then I have so, one, one more question before I let you go. You didn't receive, and the 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 deputies that were honored with uh, the gold medal, and what was the other one? I lost my paper, but well, I have the medal of courage. But that um, wasn't for twenty years after the event. What took so long? So <clears throat> there was there was a lot of controversy with uh, Sheriff Clark and the Riverside Sheriffs Association as to um how we were how we were so unable to properly respond to the um the bank robbery with such small munitions that we had to ask everybody else for help couldn't communicate properly with one another uh there was some animosity that Jim could have lived if uh he had better communications if he would have um, heard the helicopter maybe, yeah Maybe if we had patrol rifles or something like that, we could have uh, 
stop the pursuit before, you know, from going on as long as it did. You know, maybe we could have stopped it uh, in Norco or somewhere close by without having it to run into a forest, you know, 50 miles away and trying to capture them that way. So, um, so there was animosity between the sheriff administration and sheriff's uh, deputies. And, uh, and uh, so there was resentment on, uh, on uh, everyone's part. And it wasn't until uh, uh, another sheriff, Sheriff uh, Smith, Larry Smith, uh, uh, 20 years later, felt uh, that maybe it was time to recognize those people that uh, had uh, fought that battle, laid down their lives, uh, got, were injured and such. Uh, Jim Evans was given the Medal of Valor. Um, Andy Delgado, Chuck Hill, and myself got the Medal of Courage. It's kind of like a silver star. Uh, the gold, the gold star or the gold uh, heart, excuse me, is uh, is like the purple heart for being injured in uh, in in combat. So I got those two, and some of the others. I think Wayne McDaniel's got the gold heart. Uh, Glenn Blasky. Got the, got the gold heart, but Blasky got the gold heart. Yeah, all of us that were wounded got got the gold heart. So um, it's nice that 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 got resolved. I have to say that it kind of left a a little sour note that uh, when you have that big of a event take place, that not remembering or recognizing those that were willing to sacrifice, you know, life, limb, and death to uh, to bring these people to justice, we're never we're never recognized for that. But but today we are. We've had a a 20-year reunion, we've had a, a 30-year reunion, and and hopefully maybe there'll be a 40-year reunion. Suspects Belisario Delgado, age 17, died at the scene. Killed by one of only four shots, Deputy Glenn Belaski managed to fire while under a barrage of bullets. Manny Delgado was killed by law enforcement when he refused to surrender in Lytle Creek. George Smith is serving life without the possibility of parole at California State Prison in Cochrane. Christopher Harvin is serving life without the possibility of parole at California State Prison, Vacaville. Russell Harvin is also serving life without the possibility of parole in California State Prison in Lancaster, California. More importantly, the deputies involved in the gun battle were all awarded medals of honor for their courage and bravery that day. Deputy Evans was survived by his wife, Mary, and six children. He was also survived by his parents, two brothers, and one sister. Deputy Evans had served in the U.S. Army as a ranger and had been awarded the Army's Medal of Valor. In 2002, the Riverside Sheriff's Department presented the Medal of Valor to Mary and her son, James Jr. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. Be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. Each of us has a purpose. We are destined to do something meaningful, not only to support our loved ones, but to positively impact our communities throughout the country. What do you think a private Christian education looks like? 
Grand Canyon University offers over 175 high-quality online programs across nine colleges. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.